So if you could turn with me uh, to Ruth uh, chapter 1, I will be reading the whole of the chapter, but the text uh, will be, for our sermon will be verses 19 to 22. So Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephaphrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went to the way. Uh, they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, "Go, return each to you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you." As you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices, and they lifted up their voices and and wept. And they said to her, Go, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister's-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Why you, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried." May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, 
who returned from the land of the country of Moab and came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Amen. So, this is the third time we've uh, looked at Ruth, uh, chapter 1. And so far, rather than being the story of Ruth, it's been the story of uh, Naomi's life. So let's just do a quick recap over the story so far. So we see in verses uh, 1 to uh, 5 that there was this famine in the land uh, because of the people of Israel, their unfaithfulness to God. And so this family made this fateful decision to to leave the the land of Israel, leave the, the, the covenant God of Israel and go to Moab Uh, and be protected under his auspices. There we see that her husband died, and then her two sons died. And then we see from verses 6 to 18, which we looked at last time, Naomi decides to make this journey back to the land of Israel. And she's returned with her two daughters-in-law, although one of them decides that she's not going to continue, and she goes back to her people, and Naomi continues with Ruth. And finally we see here in, in our text for our sermon that Naomi is back in the land of Israel and there she's communicating with the people that she once knew. So if you remember from when I first preached uh, on Ruth chapter 1 in verses 1 to 6, remember we talked about the unfaithfulness towards God of this family leaving God and, and going to the gods of the other nation. Faithlessness. From verses 6 to 18, we talked about returning to the land. And we saw here that, that Ruth, uh, sorry, Naomi was describing to his two daughters in law what it is to make a loving commitment. But because of the idolatry in, in Orpah's heart, because there was something that she loved more than Naomi, she returned and left Naomi, and Ruth continued with her. So it's faithlessness and idolatry. And we see here in our text, we see uh, that that Naomi lifts up a bitter cry. And it seems, and I I hope to uh, show in in a few moments, that this is an act of ingratitude by Naomi herself. So we see these these three sins which have been described so far in this text, faithlessness, idolatry, and ingratitude. And I think we'd all all agree that looking at those sins, that that faithlessness and idolatry are pretty serious. We would would instantly know that. But maybe we think of ingratitude. Maybe we think that this is somewhere down the pecking order of the the list of sins. You know, idolatry, faithlessness, and then ingratitude seems smaller on, on, on this scale of sins if we were to put them on a scale. And we know that God has judged his nation, his people of Israel, because of their faithlessness, because of their idolatry. In fact, several times God wiped out thousands of the people because of their sin. But also numerous times that God wiped out thousands of people from the congregation of Israel, his people, because of their murmuring, their groaning, their ingratitude. It's documented in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 9 to 10. We must, put, we must not put God to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumbling of some of those, as some of those did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This sin of ingratitude is, is very serious. It's on a par with faithlessness and idolatry. And so I want to look at, at, at this sin, but not just look at this sinner, but reasons why 
this sin is, is actually foolishness. But we, before we get there, if I'm to talk about this sin of ingratitude, then we need to know what it is and what it isn't. Because we see here at the end of this story, Naomi has been through a pretty distressing time, has she not? She's lost her husband, she's lost her two sons, she's lost her land, her, her family name. And so this ingratitude comes from this, this, this point of pain and hurt. She's suffered. And there is things that we will go through in this life, suffering, pain, tribulation, trials. The Bible tells us that we will go through these things. It promises us that we will go through these things as Christians. And there is natural responses of, of a human being to these sorts of things, which in and of themselves are not sinful. But the enemy might be able to use us in those times when we are down, when we're suffering, when we're going through this pain. The enemy might be able to use our natural responses and point them out and say that this is sin and condemn us when we should not be condemned. So before we look at what it is, I want to look at a few things of what ingratitude is not. And where best to look than this is our saviour. For there is nothing that Jesus Christ did that was sinful in and of itself. And we might not always do it for the same motives and the same reasons. So there may be sin in some of the things that are mentioned here. But in and of themselves, these are not sinful. So what ingratitude is not? Groaning. So it's like when we feel physical pain or there is a physical burden upon us, we, we uh, groan either outwardly or, or in, our, in our hearts, don't we? And it's the same when we go for emotional, spiritual pain. There is a, there is a groaning in us. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself groaned at the tomb of Lazarus when he saw the unbelief. So groaning in itself, feeling that burden and groaning, that inner groaning, is not ingratitude. Secondly, what is not ingratitude? Tears. Our Saviour, did he not weep over Jerusalem at the sake that his people were refusing to repent and come to God? And the same way that we go through suffering, there is often tears. This is not ingratitude. This is the natural response of a human being to pain and suffering. The third thing that it's not is, is a perplexity. Jesus Christ himself marveled at people's unbelief. And we are often perplexed by the things that happen to us in this life. We think, well, why is this happening? What's going on? We're perplexed. But that in and of itself is not ingratitude. Fourthly, the fact that we ask questions even to God is not ingratitude. Did not our Saviour on the cross say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And therefore there is nothing wrong, there's nothing sinful in us asking questions to God saying, why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? What is this all about? Perfectly legitimate things to do when we are suffering. And finally, what is not ingratitude? It's asking to be delivered from those things that we're going through. Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed, did he not, Father, deliver me, but not my will, yours be done. And therefore there is nothing wrong. It is a natural response of a human being when he is suffering or she is suffering to ask God to be delivered from it. But always given the caveat, not my will, but yours be done. See, the Lord knows, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, that the treasure of God is in frail earthen vessels. And that is what we are. And, we, and, and our suffering and, and, and our pain and these things that we go through, our groaning tears, perplexities, are to show us and to remind us that we are just jars of clay.
So we've looked at what is not. So what is ingratitude? Let us look at our text on verse 20 and verse 21. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Now I can't examine the motives of Naomi. But from what she's saying, it seems to there's two things here that speak of ingratitude. One is she seems to be implying that God is unfair and that God has treated her unfairly. The second is that she is actually owed something. She went away full and God has brought her back empty. She's implying that, that she was owed something that God hasn't given to her. And I think this amply explains what ingratitude is. Saying that God is being unfair to us and expecting something and, and thinking that we're owed something that we don't have. And I'm sure we all go through this. We all feel these in the pain and the suffering. We all have these feelings. But what do we need to do when, when lies come in? For this is what they are. What, what do we do when lies come in? When we confront them with the truth that we don't give them airtime in our mind. But that doesn't seem to be what Naomi has done here. This is not just a bad moment for Naomi and she says these things. For she identifies with these things. She identifies as someone who is God has treated unfairly and God has given, not given what she deserves. For she changes her name. She says that my, I am not to be called Naomi, which means pleasant, but call me Mara, which means bitter. This is a very dangerous place that we can be in, not just with ingratitude, but when we allow lies, the lies of the devil to come in and not confront them with truth and we give them airtime and we think about them, we mull them over, then they become part of our identity. And Naomi here is living, it seems, in self-pity. It may have started right back there when, when her family business was collapsing because of the famine. So we've as way of introduction, I've described what this ingratitude is, but what I want to do for the remainder of the sermon is look at three things. And that our ingratitude comes from three misunderstandings. Uh, the first is what we have been saved from. The second is the providence of God. And the third is our future hope. Or we could look at it like this, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. So let us look at our first point. Ingratitude is a misunderstanding of what we have been saved from. Now if God had administered fairness, if God had administered justice to Naomi, then she wouldn't be in chapters 20 uh, with, with these, these uh, bitter words. Because she wouldn't have made it outside of chapter outside of verse 5 as soon as that family turned away from the living God in unfaithfulness the justice of God if it was administered at that point would have cut her off she'd be cut off from God whether that means her life would have been ended at that point or whether she'd been removed from the the children of Israel cut off from any hope of salvation that's what she deserved that's what justice demanded Psalm 79, 21, 22 says this, 
Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and they did not trust his saving power. This is exactly what Naomi and her family did or didn't do. Trust in God's saving power and God's wrath was kindled against her. But because of his mercy, he didn't administer that wrath. Naomi deserved God's judgment. So the question is, what do we deserve? And we need to look at what type of sinner we are to see what we deserve. For that will determine what we deserve is, is what we are or, or what we were if we're Christians today. And if we go out into the general public and we're to speak to the, you know, the general public as, as I generally do, we get this idea that, that human beings are generally good But just because of inconsistencies in our character, we occasionally do bad things. That's what most people on the streets will believe. And sadly, that's what many people in churches believe. This is not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that we we have corrupt natures. Because of the fall of Adam, we have inherited corrupt natures which which are bent towards doing that which is evil. And even our good works are like filthy rags. And you can almost see why God would save someone who was generally good and just acted inconsistently. You know, he looked down and there was a group of people trying to do their best, trying to be good, and occasionally did something that's bad. You could, you could understand why God would save such a people. And maybe you could even understand how God would save the type of people that have just described. For it's like a child. He knows that stealing from the cookie jar is wrong, but he wants the cookie. And that's his desire. And that's his motive, is to get that cookie. And we can sort of see how a mother might look at at that child and think, well, it doesn't want to disobey me, but it so desperately wants that cookie. We so desperately want our sin. But I think our sin is actually worse than that. And I want us to look at Romans 7. So if you could turn to Romans 7 for me. Starting at verse 7, and working our way down to 15, I'm going to be commenting as we go. Now I know these debates about what exactly Paul's talking about, whether it's a Christian, whether it's a non-Christian, whether it's someone who's on the cusp of being a Christian. People have got different ideas, but for the point I'm trying to make, that is irrelevant, because Paul is talking in this section about the old nature, which is what I want us to consider. So starting at verse 7, it says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But listen carefully to verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Can you see what it's saying here that the, the sinful nature the sinful nature didn't even know that it was wrong to cover it, it seemed to have no desire to cover when it, when it didn't know that coveting was evil but it says sin the sinful nature seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness it seems to be saying here that as soon as the sinful nature realized that something was evil then it pursued it It wasn't for the the, the desire of the evil itself. 
It was because it knew it was an evil. It knew that God had commanded it. And that's when it pursued it. Let's go back to our analogy with a child in the cookie jar. It's not the child looking at the cookie jar and seeing a delicious cookie in there. Let's say, for example, he'd just eaten a whole packet of cookies and he had no desires for cookies. And he looked in that cookie jar and it was near, he didn't want to put his hand in it. He didn't want to steal that cookie jar, that cookie. But just imagine his mum said, don't have that cookie. Then because his mum had said no, he puts his hand in, he takes a cookie. Not because he wants a cookie, but because he wants to disobey his mum. You cannot see that is far more worse. We are not motivated by the sin itself. We're motivated by an, a, a rebellious heart that wants to rebel against God. And any sin will do. And that is why people pursue any manner of sins. And they pursue them at the destruction of their own body. Because it's a sinful heart that wants to rebel against God. Verse 11 tells us this also. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, deceived me and through it killed me. You see, the argument might be, well, that's not, that's not the way I was. You see, when I did my sin, it's because I love the sin. But the Bible's saying here that our hearts are deceitful above all things. We don't know even our own motives. We don't know why we do things. The sinful heart deceived them. We were deceived. We didn't pursue our sin because we necessarily enjoyed the sin itself. We pursued our sin because we have rebellious hearts that hate God. That's where we were. And 13, it says, do that which is good, then bring death to me. By no means it was sin producing death in me. Through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. You see, to understand who we are, we need to see what our sin is. Shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Our sin was sinful beyond measure. And you may say, well, I didn't hate God. Well, that's, the Bible doesn't agree. Romans 1.30 says, Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And John 15.8 says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. God has given us so much to humanity. And in return, we give him hate. What judgment, what punishment awaits such creatures as that? But what love, what love would compel a saviour to die for such creatures? That's the question we need to concentrate, we need to think in our minds. What love would compel a saviour to die for such creatures? 2 Corinthians 5.21 I almost feel like taking my shoes off when I read this text because it is just so holy. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't even like commenting on, on this scripture because it almost seems blasphemous if the Apostle Paul had not written that. That it That for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. What was that sin that he was made to be? A hatred for his father. 
Our hatred for his father was put on Christ and he was punished in our place. And in light of that, how could we utter one word of complaint or ingratitude? If we are ungrateful, then it's because we misunderstand what we have been saved from. Well, secondly, it's a misunderstanding of the providence of God. Let us go through uh, our text back in Ruth, if you turn back to, to Ruth for me. And just put yourself in, in Naomi's shoes. So in, in the start of chapter 1, she's got a good business, she's feeding a family, she's two sons and a husband, everything's going well. And then the famine hits, and she's starting to worry about how she's going to feed her family. And then they go away to another land, so she loses her friends, uh, she loses her property. And then her husband dies. The, the man that she had spent her life with, her, her sustainer, her provider, he dies to add to all this pain. And then one of her son dies while she's still reeling from the death of her husband. Her first son dies. And she's probably crying out to God now, please, Lord, one son, I've just got one son, my family name, please keep him. And then what happens? He dies also. We can imagine the pain and the suffering of, of, of Naomi. And then she returns to Israel destitute. And one of the women that has promised to be with her turns away and turns her back. And she's left with only Ruth. We can almost sympathise with Naomi, can't we? And as far as Naomi is concerned, the book of Ruth is only one chapter long. Is it not? She's there at the end of chapter 22, uh, verse 22. She doesn't know what's going to come in chapters 2, 3 and 4. They've not been written as far as Naomi's concerned. But we know as far as God's concerned that those chapters have already been written. Those chapters were written before the foundation of the world. The book of Ruth was complete before God created the universe. And little did Naomi know, although God knew, that these last few words at the end of this chapter, at the end of where she is, the current place in her life, that it was the beginning of the barley harvest, that that was going to be the turning point, that was what God was going to use to, to, uh, to bring about this incredible story of Ruth, this incredible story of this love story where where God redeems his people and ultimately uh, who will produce uh, offspring who will then be the ancestor of David and from David we know uh, the Messiah would come. So if Naomi was looking from the end of the book of Ruth, then the position that she is in now and the words that she had said would seem quite trite and quite silly, would they not? From her present position, they make a lot of sense and we can sympathise with her and we'd probably be there. But from the end of the book of Ruth, they look kind of trite and silly. And our life is the same as Ruth. Some of us have had more chapters written than others. But we're all at a certain point in our lives and we all know that there is still chapters to be written. But we don't know what is going to be written on those chapters. But we do know two things. We know the one who's writing those chapters is God. Or 
should I say, has written those chapters. God. And we also know the brief that God uses to write those chapters. Firstly, that all things will work to our good. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We know that that is one brief that God uses to write the remaining chapters of our lives. The second thing, and more importantly, and we will appreciate how much more importantly when we are in glory, that all things work for God's glory. Romans 11, 33, 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who can be his counsellor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Without the tragedies that happened to Naomi in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 and chapter 4 could not have been written. They were dependent on the tragedies that happened to Naomi and to Ruth. And it's the same in our lives. The pain, the suffering, the trials, the tribulation that are interwoven into our story so far are absolutely necessary for God to achieve his divine purposes. And so in light of this, it's inconceivable that we'd be ungrateful. Finally, if we are ungrateful, we misunderstand our future destiny. When I examine my life, I see a life that has been pretty much void of any real pain, suffering or anguish. But some people go through things that are utterly terrifying, utterly traumatic. Some things are so severe that no matter how much good comes out of this life for them, they may think, they may be right, that it's just not worth it. And Paul would tend to agree with that. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, it says, If anyone in Christ, uh, sorry, if in Christ we have only this life only, we are to be of all people most to be pitied. We need to remember in those situations, in those times, if we do find ourselves going through them, that our temporal suffering reaps eternal benefits that our suffering can only be and will only be temporal there comes a time when we leave this life and if we are Christians we go into glory and there will be no more suffering pain on the other side of death for us our suffering, our pain will only ever be temporary but the blessings that come from that temporary suffering will be eternal they will be eternal Romans 18, 17 to 18 says, And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
and 2 Corinthians 4.17 for this light momentary affliction. Remember who's saying this. It's the Apostle Paul who was beaten with rods, who was stoned to death, who uh, was shipwrecked at sea, who was hated by his own people, who he loved and was trying to save. And many, many all uh, other things that are recorded there in Corinthians. He says these words, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And I want to just touch on two things, two reasons why our blessings, um, our temporary suffering in this life brings eternal blessings. And the first is that by our suffering we share in the suffering of Jesus Christ. And we understand better the love that compelled Christ to go to the cross. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering becoming like him in his death. This was a cry, this was a prayer of Paul. He was crying out to God that I may share in his sufferings because Paul knew that through his sufferings he could experience something, although very small compared to the sufferings of Jesus Christ. He could share in the sufferings and, and by having and knowing and experiencing those sufferings, he could, to some degree, understand the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And remember that Jesus Christ took those sufferings upon himself willingly and gladly. No one forced Jesus Christ to suffer. No one caused Jesus Christ to suffer beyond his will. He chose to suffer And that when we suffer, we can enter in to some of the sufferings that Jesus Christ, as as we are perplexed, as our tears flow, as as we are questioning God, as we are asking God for this, this pain, this seemingly unbearable pain to be removed from us, that we can remember Christ as he was perplexed, as he was suffering, as he was questioning and he was asking his father. And this is not just for this life. This isn't just not for the next 20, 30, 40 years, however long we've got, however long we've got. We take this knowledge into eternity. We will take, because of our pain and our suffering, our tolls, we will take into eternity a knowledge of how much Jesus Christ loved us. And we'll sing and glorify his name because of those, that experience that we had. But two, by sharing in Christ's sufferings, we can show him that we love him. 1 Peter 1, 6, 7 said, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you know, as, as Christians, we, we understand what, what I mentioned about our sinful state previously, and, and we understand what the Bible says, that, that our good works are like filthy rags with regards to righteousness before God. And if we just concentrate on that, we can get to this place where we think that God is not pleased with us. 
And God is not pleased with the good that we do. But God is pleased. And God sees everything that we do. And God sees our suffering. And when we are going through suffering and trials and pain, often because we are a Christian and because we're choosing the right way, but God looks down upon us and it pleases his heart. I tell you, in eternity, there is nothing that we will praise God for than opportunities to, to please our Savior, to do that which is pleasing to him. And our suffering and our trial give us that opportunities. And those will be eternally etched in the mind of God In 10 million years in eternity, God, Jesus Christ, will still remember the times when we were suffering and we were faithful to him. What a gift. What a gift our suffering is to us. This is a short period of time that we have here. And as I said, there will be no suffering in the next life. This is the only opportunity we get to receive this gift. I'm sure in eternity there will be a, a thousand and one new ways to please God and to, and to enjoy him. But we'll never again have the opportunity to suffer for him. Suffering is an immeasurable gift. And therefore, ingratitude for it is inconceivable. It actually steals those blessings from us. So let's finish with this text, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for all things as your word has just commanded us to do. We thank you for the times, the pleasant times, the good times. Lord, we also thank you, Father, for the times of the suffering and the pain. Lord, please remind us in those times of something of our Saviour's suffering and his pain, that our hearts may love him more. And remind us that our faithfulness during these times that pleases you. Lord, please help us, Father, to live lives that are always full of, of gratitude and thankfulness. For we ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.